0: Once again, I think that's the beginning to the Victorious theme song, so we're off to such a strong start already. Um, I say once again because this is about the 30th time that I've recorded this, um, and of course every time I've recorded it I've found something that I dislike about it, but I'm determined that this will be the recording that graces your beautiful, beautiful little ears, you uh, listener you. So welcome to the first episode of the Training Grounds podcast. This podcast is all about how history has influenced coffee and how coffee has influenced history. Sometimes we'll deviate from that, but this podcast was born from the idea that we need more history-focused education in coffee training. I'm Katie, by the way. I've been a barista for eight years, five of those in NYC. And in my time in New York, I really noticed that blind spot in history and coffee history. And I did a lot of digging, and it made me realize just how transformative having the full story can be for professional baristas and coffee enthusiasts alike. So I've been a barista for so long. I love the Brooklyn 99 9 quote. Um, not only have I been to hell... I was assistant manager there, so I feel like that gets across everything I need. <laughs> um, I am still a full time barista at a high volume cafe in Manhattan. I'm also helming the development of our education program there, and I have uh, dabbled in some beverage development. But I feel like that's enough about me, and now we can move on to why we're here. Before we get into the history of it all, I think that it's important that we go over a few terms and concepts that are. Really- really going to frame the information going forward and that is accountability versus responsibility that's where i'd like to start so separating out these two is really important and while they do overlap in dictionary definition their real world applications are a little bit different so responsibility it's the most familiar to us so let's start there we all have some kind of responsibilities and we face consequences when those responsibilities aren't fulfilled. Responsibility is a concept that centers the self. When translated to work, this looks a lot like not my job, not my problem. And it perpetuates a culture where everyone is sort of just looking out for themselves. Especially in a capitalist society, responsibility becomes very personal. Fulfilling your responsibilities is a way to rise in the ranks. And it's a way to show that you have your shit together. And generally more responsibilities are given to you when there is trust that you will fulfill them. At the same time, because it So personal. People don't want to be held responsible for things that they don't think are in their purview. This principle, though, of responsibility, it doesn't just exist in the workplace. It exists out in the world, how we live our lives. And this is where that not my job, not my problem becomes potentially detrimental to society. This is really where responsibility and accountability diverge. Accountability begins where the self ends. So the best way I can explain accountability is just getting right to the point, uh, which is racism in America. Yes, this is that kind of podcast. Please leave your rage comment for the engagement. Thank you so much. I am white, and I think a lot of white people get hung up on not wanting to be, quote, responsible for the devastating history of, like, slavery and enduring racism in this country. So much so that they don't even want to consider how they fit into the equation. They are not responsible, so they don't even want to hear about it. And you'll notice that it's a lot of shutting down. It's a lot of, really honestly, it feels like someone plugging their ears and going la 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 as a full-grown tax-paying adult. Embarrassing. Most white people think that it's enough for them to simply not be racist. In their minds, if they aren't racist, then they aren't responsible for any racism. Thing is, not being racist is like the bare minimum. So again, accountability begins where the self ends. It may be true that you don't say slurs or treat people of color differently or say disparaging things about the black community in private, but you shouldn't be doing those things, period. Simply not being racist, it's not enough. You need to be actively anti-racist. Really, that means that you need to be doing what you can in your personal or professional capacity to root out the instances of racism in your life and hold them to the light and force yourself to reckon with those incredibly uncomfortable things In order to affect real change. It's not something that's going to be comfortable. It's not something that you're going to enjoy. Honestly, when you learn this information, I hope you don't enjoy it. I can't really tell you how to do that in your life. You need to figure that out yourself. That's kind of where we get into an accountability trap, which is to say that, and this is especially especially in liberal and progressive circles, but it's just also kind of human nature. So people tend to educate themselves on an issue or topic. And then that is as far as they go. So they put themselves on a moral high ground and they think they're affecting change, but unless they're going out into their daily lives to do actionable things, they're just being self-righteous and performative. Everything that they're doing is to make themselves feel good. Everything they're doing is to make themselves feel comfortable. Because if it was more than that, then they would do more than that. So, we're going to talk more at the very end about how you can be actively anti racist in your capacity as a barista. So, stay tuned for that. For me personally, separating out these two terms has been really huge, not just in my professional life, but in my personal life. I've also noticed a lot of white people don't want to be held responsible for the actions of slave owners centuries ago, which like, same. But to my white listeners, no one is asking you to rake yourself over the coals for the actions of horrible people hundreds of years ago. What you're being asked to do is willingly join a coalition of Other human beings that are actively trying to prevent history from repeating itself, starting with how they live their daily lives. So now we can move on to truth and erasure. There's this really awesome quote that I heard in a coffee class, and I cannot find the source online. It must be part of like some kind of academic journal or paper or something that's maybe hidden by a paywall, but I do have the quote. However painful, the beginning of transformation is to name and remember coffee's history. Sanitizing coffee's history, it's a disservice to you. You deserve the whole picture, and you deserve to make your own call. I think that it's unacceptable that a lot of these cafes, coffee companies, can claim to have robust coffee training and they Totally gloss over the beginnings to make people comfortable. I've had experience with this firsthand. I thought that I knew everything because I had learned how coffee goes from bean to cup. What I didn't fully realize is that how that bean even got to be farmed on such a scale is a whole entire epic in and of itself. I think that arguably more baristas would give a shit about their jobs if they knew these things. In my experience, anytime I've told this to baristas, this information that we're about to learn, it's only ever empowered them. And I think that that's really important, especially because as baristas, our jobs are often denigrated and written off as a low-skilled position. And Anybody that has put in at least a little bit of effort knows that that's just patently false. And yes, all of this information is out there. I'm not gonna say that this has been hidden and I'm the first person to ever enlighten all of you. Like I could have gone and figured this shit out when I first got hired as a barista in the year of our Lord 2016. However, you do kind of have to know that something exists in order to educate yourself more on it. And I think that is where the coffee industry is really, really lacking. When you know it exists and you purposely choose not to engage, then we have a problem. So, accessibility. The coffee industry doesn't have the best track record when it comes to being open and honest about sourcing and logistics and history for reasons that we're about to learn, quite frankly, if I got caught doing this shit, I wouldn't want anyone to know about it either. So by working towards breaking down those barriers, we can work towards no longer erasing the complex identity and intersectionality of the people that make coffee. Here's an example of what I'm trying to talk about here. It's common to look to Italy as the obvious coffee influence in the world, but coffee doesn't grow naturally in Italy. It doesn't have the right soil or climate. It's not part of the duck. Yet we blindly accept everything that Italy has to say about coffee as if they are the reason that the world has coffee. And don't get me wrong, Italy had a huge influence on drink composition and the way we consume espresso and the machines that we do that with. But It's sort of like, you know, with noodles. Italy didn't invent noodles, or at the very least, they invented it around the same time it was organically being invented somewhere else. And if you point that out to Italians a lot, will be quick to say something to the effect of, well, we didn't invent it, but we did perfect it. And I think, at least when it comes to coffee, is simply a statement of ignorance and one that could only be made by someone that is absolutely no idea what they're talking about and i say that with the utmost disrespect so i think italy is a comfortable stopping point if you press much further than that you're gonna find out about a lot more than you might have bargained for and no one refutes it because it's comfortable and the people that actually do grow the coffee are so marginalized in this industry that we don't ever really hear their histories as a result coffee as an industry is still very uneven. We work in a multi-billion dollar industry here in the US and over in Europe, and we have access to high paying positions for people with coffee experience. But where the beans are grown, the farm workers are often working on poverty wages and in some cases are subject to forced labor. And this gaping divide isn't coincidental. So let's get into why it exists. History of coffee can be broken down into two sections, pre-forced labor and post-forced labor. It begins around 500 and 850 AD. It's hard to know exactly when and where coffee's origins are, but it's widely accepted that it was first discovered in Ethiopia sometime between 500 and 850 AD. While doing my research, it seems like roughly 500 AD fits the historical timeline best. So for our purposes, we're going to say coffee was discovered in 500 AD. There's many different stories about the discovery of coffee. I was mainly familiar with the story of the dancing goats, which we're about to get into, but I was unaware just how woven into some cultures coffee is. So Aromia, it's the largest state in Ethiopia, and it's where most of Ethiopia's coffee grows. And this region includes Kaffa, where the dancing goat story takes place, but the Aromo people have a deep religious connection to coffee. In a religious parable, the coffee plant was bestowed upon them as a gift. As a result, coffee is an influence in daily life in Aromia, and it has been for centuries traditional coffee ceremonies happening up to three times a day, which are actually pretty cool. It's an incredible process and something that honestly we can charge an insane amount for here in Manhattan. The ceremonies, they're usually uh, conducted by women, the matriarch of the family typically. It's a very high honor. So the beans, the green coffee beans are washed by hand. And keep in mind, you know, when you harvest a coffee cherry, It needs to be washed or processed in some kind of way. So they're doing this by hand, and then they roast the green coffee beans in front of you using a pan over an open flame. And once roasted, the host will give guests the opportunity to waft the scent. And if you've ever, you know, tasted espresso with someone that knows what they're talking about, they would tell you to always smell your espresso before you taste it. Aroma is something like 80-90% of taste everyone gets a chance to take in that freshly roasted coffee scent. And then the coffee is ground manually using a mortar and pestle. And the host then puts the coffee and some water into a jebena pot. It's got a spherical base, a really tall neck, and then a pouring spout and a handle. The host boils the water and the coffee several times, and they taste it as they go to ensure that it's ready. And then the coffee is distributed to the guests. And interestingly, uh, popcorn is usually served at these tasting ceremonies. No one can really pinpoint exactly where that came from or why that came or, you know, when that happened, but it's a fun little piece of information to know, and if you are ever hosting a tasting at your cafe, you could serve popcorn and tell everybody the story of the coffee ceremony in Aromia. Aromia, they consume just as much coffee as they sell and it's home to Kaffa, where the story of the dancing goats is rumored to take place. So Kaldi, he was a goat herder, or a monk slash goat herder, a multi-hyphenate, if you will, and one day he finds that his goats have gotten loose. He finds them in the woods, and they're eating these red cherries that have fallen from a tree. And I say tree, but I really, I mean it is technically a tree, but it's sort of like the height and look of a tall shrub, but he sees that, you know, they're eating the berries off of this tree. He's like, all right. He rounds his goats up and he takes them back to their enclosure. And then that night he notices that his goats will not go to sleep. So he goes out to their little hut and he looks in on them and he sees that they are what looks like they're doing is dancing. I don't know if you've ever seen like little videos of goats. First of all, it's so cute. Baby goats, adorable. They do kind of get zoomies and it's really funny because like they love to jump and like sort of like leverage themselves off something. It's almost like they're like parkour and they'll parkour off of each other. So a goat will like jump onto another goat and then push themselves off of that goat. It's incredible. So in my mind, I like to imagine that they're doing that kind of thing. And Basically, Caldi's like, what the hell? So he goes back to where he found his goats, and he gathers up some of those berries. Now, in some stories, Caldi himself tries the berries and finds out the caffeine effects and brings that to the monks. In some stories, he brings it straight to the monks, and they end up utilizing them in their prayer rituals. Now, generally, the way that uh, coffee was originally consumed, they would boil the green coffee bean and then drink that liquid, which essentially what they're doing is drinking straight green coffee bean extract, which is pretty goddamn caffeinated. There's this really interesting piece of text that we have from an explorer, quote unquote. It was described by this man as euphoric. The experience of drinking this liquid gold I think is what he referred to it as. And like do you think that coffee was like much stronger back then? Like sort of how people are like oh weed from back in the day is like so good and the weed today sucks. Or like do you think that Lord Darbin of Farben had just never taken a stimulant before and when he did, he saw God? I don't know. It's 50-50. So anyway, in the 6th century AD, Ethiopia invaded Yemen and they likely took coffee with them. So another way to consume the coffee bean at this time was to smash the coffee cherry flat, to then wrap it with like beef suet or like a beef fat, and then chew on that for energy for traveling. In the 1400s, the Sufi monks of Yemen had adopted coffee into their midnight prayer rituals. So coffee as a piece of culture is spreading. It's important to note at this time, coffee really only grew out in the wild or a few trees, like maybe to three max in monastery gardens. Yemen is then occupied by Ottoman Turks in 1583, and the Turks discover coffee in the process. Muslim pilgrims end up taking coffee across Turkey, North Africa, Egypt, Persia, and India. So coffee is spreading, but the Ottoman Turks are very protective of coffee because they recognize its profitability, and so what they would do is they would dry the bean to the point that it couldn't be used to propagate new plants elsewhere and they also outlawed the trading of it. But you can't hide from white people trying to colonize the globe, which was a huge bummer for the rest of the world. And by the 1600s, Europe has realized coffee's profitability. Most likely, coffee was introduced to Europe via Hungary when the Turks invaded in 1526. But keep in mind, Europe doesn't have the climate or the soil to grow coffee. So the Dutch dominate the shipping trade at this time. And while they don't trade enslaved people, they do force the indigenous people of the islands of Southeast Asia into a type of serfdom, so slavery, slavari, you know. We're going to see this happening a lot. Once the Dutch steal coffee seeds and smuggle them out of Yemen, they're able to cultivate them in their Indonesian colonies, because coffee does in fact grow in Indonesia, and one of these colonies was on an island called Java. So the Dutch established large coffee plantations, taking what was once grown in the wild and sparsely in monastery gardens into a large-scale production. When they did this, they opened up the plant to disease, they introduced vulnerabilities, and they fundamentally changed the very genetics of the coffee plant. So we'll never know what coffee was like back then. It simply does not exist in this world anymore. So what was once farmed willingly and intentionally was now the product of brutal forced labor. And I want to make it abundantly clear here that forced labor slavery was baked into the business model from the very Beginning. Because of this constant turnover of human lives, coffee production very much fueled the triangle trade of the 1700s. Now, if you weren't paying attention in middle school, let me refresh your memory. The triangle trade was a pattern of trade in the 1700s where the trading of goods fuels the slave trade. So, cotton is grown by slaves in the US, it's sent to England where it becomes fabric, and then that fabric is taken to Africa and more slaves are sent from Africa to the U.S. and Caribbean, and so on, and so on, and so on. I mention the Caribbean because one of the most historically consequential moments in Haiti was caused largely in part by coffee. So now let's go ahead and talk about the Haitian revolution. So in 1791, France was occupying Haiti and Haiti was growing half of the world's supply of coffee, which was only possible through slave labor. But let's press pause and back up a bit. Before the French got there, the island and its people had already been ravaged by Spanish colonists, courtesy of one of history's biggest assholes, Christopher Columbus, and he gave him the old Columbus treatment, let me tell ya. By the 16th century, the native people of Haiti had essentially vanished, having been killed off by European illness, cruel working conditions, and forced labor. All of Haiti's usable land was being used to grow coffee or sugar, which meant no land to grow food. And this means that they had to have food shipped in from elsewhere, and who's having that food shipped in elsewhere? But captors of slaves, and these captors believe these slaves are wholly replaceable. And this leads to widespread famine. So as you may have noticed uh, by now, conditions on these coffee plantations would be a combination of torture, malnutrition, overwork, and unsanitary living conditions. And I want to stress that this was not a unique situation. This was the business model itself extending every single place coffee was being grown in brazil conditions were so poor that the life expectancy of an enslaved person after arriving at that colony was 7 years and i cannot stress enough that the colonists decided it was cheaper and easier to send an endless stream of slaves than it would be to improve any conditions keep that idea in your head we're going to circle back to that that disregarding the human contribution is easier than putting in an effort. Back to the lead up to the revolution. By 1789, there were about 500,000 African slaves in Haiti, 32,000 colonists and about 24,000 free black people or free people of mixed race. Obviously these are pretty nice Odds and some pretty fucking stupid colonists. So, a side note here when you're researching the Haitian Revolution, you well, first of all, when you're researching anything, you're going to come across a lot of people that are just disseminating false information, information that has since been disproven, or information that they really didn't need to add to their article. They just kind of added it for fun. Maybe to seem smart, I don't know. One of the things that you will find when you're researching the Haitian Revolution is the French inspiration myth. So we're going to go ahead and uh, dismantle this theory right here and now. The French inspiration myth posits that Haitians were so inspired by the French Revolution that they were able to stage their own. But this entirely ignores the fact that this was not some Haitians first time seeing revolution up close. Some Haitians had already fought in the American Revolution, having been sent there by the French as part of their effort to aid the Americans, because fuck England. So they would return to Haiti, disillusioned by the way that they were treated by leadership. Giving France the roundabout credit by saying it was them that inspired the Haitians suggests that France had some kind of control over their colony, even in revolt, and that they alone were able to generously bestow upon the slaves their freedom, which there would be no freedom to bestow if France hadn't created one of the most brutal colonies in the world. So there are some gold medal mental gymnastics happening here. Absolutely no part of the French Revolution pushed back on this system they created or made any attempt to improve it. And in fact, France only abolished slavery in 1794 because of the uprising. And just to further embarrass the French, because why not, they were the only nation to reestablish slavery after its abolition. The very coffee shops that the French Revolution was planned in were the same places where in the same breath, men would be plotting revolution and trading slaves. So if anything, if, anything. The French Revolution provided a perfect opportunity, but the ruling class divided, enslaved men and women were able to coordinate an uprising and eventually wrest their freedom. Now that we're done denigrating France, Haitian society was deeply divided by race, class, and gender. The free black people and people of mixed race were sometimes slave owners themselves, and they aspired to the social and economic level of the Europeans. And these people, they feared and hated the slave population, never mind the fact that they have more in common with the slave population. They, in turn, were then hated and discriminated against by the Europeans. So the very people they're trying to aspire to basically see them the way that they see the slaves. The revolution was caused As we said, by the perfect storm of frustrations with a racist society, turmoil caused by the French Revolution, nationalistic rhetoric, and continued brutality of slave owners. In late 1790, Vincent Auger, a Haitian of mixed race who lobbied the Persian assembly for colonial reforms, led an uprising, and he was subsequently captured, tortured, and killed. And in 1791, likely to quell unrest in the colony, France granted citizenship to the wealthy free black people and people of mixed race. Europeans in Haiti fully ignored this, which is a real Texas move. Within two months, isolated fighting would break out between the Europeans and the free people that they saw as below them. In August of 1791, thousands of slaves rebelled, so this would usher in another 30 years of turmoil and unrest in this quest for freedom. Be sure to note that this was not a quickly won battle. The French were taking the approach many of us are familiar with, which is they can't get what they want if we beat them to the ground. What they didn't account for is how fed up people were with the way their lives were unfolding. And I think really the true folly of the colonists was their dehumanization of anybody that wasn't white and European because they saw them as intellectually genetically inferior they didn't see them as any possible threat they didn't even see them as people that could want better in their lives and so when people you know acted like people do and get pissed the fuck off the French were absolutely blindsided and I don't think that they expected the fight that they ended up getting. By 1804 Haiti declared independence from France. In order to do so, they fought off French, British, and Spanish troops sent to crush them. So they're not fucking around here. And in 1806, Haiti is split in two. So you have Alexandre Pétion in the south and Henri Christophe in the north. At this point, France still wants their colony back because at this point in history, having colonies was like really cool. So they send three guys over in 1814 to see how willing Haiti is to surrender. Christophe, he's not with it. He had made himself king in 1811. So he obviously wasn't going to give that up. Petion was open to negotiating though. And he had an idea that maybe. they could pay France for recognition of its independence. He used the 1803 sale of Louisiana for $15 as a marker, and he proposed the same amount. In an ironic turn of events, Louis XVIII rejected the proposal, saying he didn't negotiate with runaway slaves. So, like, a few things here. Uh, They wouldn't be runaway slaves if it wasn't for you enslaving them. And also, you just told on yourself that you never really wanted to have a conversation. I mean, like, we knew that. But you You just hold on yourself that you were making a polite demand. So fuck you. Also, you look like the thumb creatures from Spy Kids and I can't take you seriously. I'm dead ass. You guys look this guy up and tell me that he doesn't look like one of the thumbs from Spy Kids. He just, he does. Petillon passes in 1818 and a man named Jean-Pierre Boyer continued negotiations. Christophe, our dude Chris, he was still strongly opposed and he was determined that the colonists shouldn't make a Profit off of enslaving them. So when Christophe dies in 1820, RIP, Boyer reunifies the country, but France still won't recognize their independence. At this point, it's King Charles Tenth, and he clearly has the realization that there's money to be made here, and he decides to take them for all they're worth. This is some succession-level bullshit. To continue what I hope will be an ongoing trend, old Chuck here, he looks like he's halfway through the transition on an Animorph cover about, like, werewolves. He's, like, halfway through that. He issues a decree that France will recognize Haitian independence for one hundred years and fifty million francs. Ten times what America paid for Louisiana. The price tag was meant to, and I use heavy quotations when I say this, compensate the French colonists for their lost revenue from slavery. In July of 1825, France sends 14 warships carrying 500 cannons to get them to sign the decree. So it's that's not diplomacy, that's extortion. And obviously to avoid potential war, Boyer signs the decree. Even at the time, outside observers, found the sum absurd. News articles at the time revealed that Chucky knew that the Haitian government wouldn't be able to make the payments because the total was 10 times Haiti's annual budget. One British journalist noted that the price was one few states in Europe could sacrifice. So Haiti is forced to borrow 30 million francs from French banks for the first two payments, and they defaulted soon after. In 1838, France sends more warships to force Hades' hand. The king this time is Louis Philippe, and I can't get past the fact that every single one of these dudes not only somehow managed to meet their predecessor's lover of cruelty, but surpassed it by leaps and bounds. Anyway, this guy looks like a ball sack. So the new treaty was misleadingly named the Treaty of Friendship, which is like, calling your extremist cult, the very reasonable people group, which reduced the amount owed to 60 million francs. And Haiti was again, ordered to take out crushing loans to repay it. Side note, did they really think that like naming it, that was just gonna like slip into history and no one would ever check, like no one was ever gonna check that out, that people would just see the title and be like, this here says they're friends. So case closed, burn all the records of this event. Great work guys. Also of note, colonists claimed this money would only cover one twelfth 12th the value of the lost property, which includes the humans they were enslaving. But the total of 90 million francs was actually five times France's annual budget. They were not just getting compensation. They were robbing them blind. And so Haitian people suffered the brunt of the consequences of France's theft. Boyer leveled draconian taxes to pay the loans. And while Christophe, our dude Chris... He had been working on a national school system when he was alive under Boyer and all subsequent presidents. Such projects were put on hold. The independence debt drained the Haitian treasury and is directly responsible for the underfunding of education in the 20th century and the country's inability to develop public infrastructure and their lack of health care. It wasn't paid off until 1947. And in the end, with the interest from the loans, Haiti ended up paying more than twice the value of the colonists' claims. And it's been determined by economists that France probably owes Haiti about 20 billion in restitution. I said I was done denigrating France, I lied. To this day, France's presidents have a history of punishing, avoiding, or downplaying Haitian demands for recompense, calling the issue a moral one but to deny the material consequences of slavery is to deny French history itself. France belatedly abolished slavery in 1848 in its remaining colonies, all of which are still French territories. And of course, The French government took it upon themselves this time to pay the slave owners for their lost profits. So they do recognize and understand slavery's relationship to economics, but only when it suits them. The enduring wealth cap is very material. The Haitian poverty rate is 59%. In France, it's 15.6. And the median annual income in France is $45,581. In Haiti, it's $1,420. This is sort of where I get hung up when I'm having conversations with other people. And I'm saying conversations, it's arguments on Instagram and Instagram comments. I'll be arguing with Instagram and they love to say if Haiti wanted to do this, they could. Or Haiti has been a society long before, you know, America was. And so clearly it's due to some fault of the people of that land. When in reality, if you have two planets side by side, and they're both inhabitable, and one planet gets hit by meteors every century, forever, and then you have another one where... Maybe it's never been hit by a meteor. One of those places, it's going to have a harder time getting to a functional place. And I think it's really, really clear to tell which one that is. In another example of consequential events in history where coffee was somehow involved, the Scramble for Africa. Is a prime example. So, the scramble for Africa refers to the period of time in the late 1800s when European powers colonized Africa. There's a lot of biased research out there on this topic, but what I was able to piece together is that for most of history, the accepted justification for colonizing Africa from imperialist scholars was for humanitarian reasons, philanthropy, and spreading Christianity. Africa was poor compared. Compared to Europe, and European leaders claimed colonization would benefit Africans, and missionaries would spread Christianity to save them. During this period, many European leaders subscribed to biological racism, which is the claim that white people were genetically superior to other races, and they believed the African people could not and should not govern themselves, which, like, if we're gonna get down to genetics, let's talk about the inbreeding of the European aristocracy Okay. Anyway, in reality, the motivations were selfish. European imperialist governments wanted to exploit Africa's resources for profit. They wanted to control new land, to compete against other imperialist powers, and they felt they were inherently superior to Africans. The Berlin Conference is one of the most infuriating events in human history. In 1884, the major imperial powers met up to discuss Africa, and they agreed to recognize each other's sovereignty over territories if certain requirements were met, like the imperial power occupying them militarily. This decision was made around the time Britain was trying to implement anti-slave trade policies to bring an end to the East African slave trade. It seemed that slavery was becoming less acceptable once all the torture and human rights abuses became too much to ignore, and that means it wasn't as profitable as it used to be. And industrialization moved the focus to the need for raw materials, including coffee. So Africa was seen as an untapped resource, which is so rich because those imperialist scholars I was talking about would swear up and down that the land was long considered to be infertile. Yeah, bet. So the splitting up was fully arbitrary and had everything to do with the needs of each imperialist power and absolutely nothing to do with tribal governments that may have been in place. There was no African representation at these talks. And so this divided tribal groups and increased conflicts in those groups. Imagine there's your territory and someone else's territory, then someone else comes in and says, actually, you guys are the same place now. Get along. Um, That's not going to work. And of course, this is just, it's super racist to just assume that your way of doing things is somehow better when clearly they already had a system in place that they put in place that was working for them. So European control of African economies meant Africans were forced to grow goods for exports and this limited economic diversity and it kept African economies weak and the European exploitation of African resources and the raw materials taken to support European economic growth prevented Africa from developing industries of its own and thus Economic growth. And of course, European cruelty to Africans continued without a formal slave trading market. So, not coffee, but on the rubber plants in the Belgian Congo controlled by King Leopold, workers who failed to meet their quotas were beaten, mutilated, or killed. Indigenous people's territories are stripped from them, and they're prohibited from traveling and forced to work in poverty on coffee farms. Now, let's talk about Central America. So, Central America in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Liberal revolutions in Central America leads to the golden age of the coffee elite. These elite are traditional aristocratic families, usually Spanish or recently immigrated Europeans who immigrated specifically to take advantage of coffee's profitability. In order to do this, the elite would displace the indigenous people and take their land. American consumption of coffee increased a ton in the lead up to the American Revolution. The usual drink of choice of the colonies would be tea, but that was facing a boycott due to taxation. No taxation without representation, all that, you know? We'll be covering that more in depth in an upcoming episode about coffee's role in revolutions throughout history. But for now, to meet the demand, large swaths of land in Central America were allocated to produce coffee. And we talked about the intentional coffee culture uh, with the Umromo people, and we've talked about imperialist nations forcing the growing of coffee onto their colonies but in this case of Central America at this time it was an odd Combination of both. So, the 14 families of El Salvador is where that gray area lies. After gaining independence from Spain after 300 years of colonial rule, the country had to establish itself economically to be taken seriously. In 1846, the Salvadorian government backs coffee for the first time. So, that means that the state offered tax breaks to anyone with more than 5,000 coffee trees and exempt coffee farm workers from military service. Okay, so who are these 14 families and what did they do? The number varies and I I don't really know if it is exactly 14 families, but the 14 families refers to the economically elite and politically powerful class from El Salvador's oligarchy. They wielded almost control of El Salvador's government, and these people also gained and maintained control of Central America's most important resource, land. Throughout the 1860s and 1870s, profits from coffee increased, and... So, of course, did the amount of land needed. There were more than 3 million coffee trees growing in the Western Highlands region. And the area around the Santa Ana volcano provided the perfect soil. Volcanic soil is volcanic ash, I believe, is typically used to supplement the soil that coffee is grown in, it it provides really nice natural irrigation, I believe. And also the minerals that are in it are, I guess, beneficial. So they have the perfect soil and the remaining land was communally farmed by peasants and indigenous people for food to eat. This was seen as an obstacle to the elite who wanted to continue to expand their coffee farms to increase product and thus increase profit. In 1882, the practice of communal lands ownership is abolished by political decree. These peasant and indigenous farmers would now be forced to either pay a fee to secure a title for their plot, or it would be put up for auction. And this process drags on for decades, turning access to land, which was once seen as a social right, into a market economy. Most indigenous communities lost access to their holdings and would have to either work on the coffee farms or move to the margins. And of course, these oligarchs did not treat their workers well. I want to talk about James Hill for a second. I wasn't going to go into this too much, uh, but I looked up a photo of the guy to roast and I got way more information than I wanted. So this guy is one of the oligarchs that started the Santa Ana plantation. And first off, he was from the slums of Manchester, so he has no reason to be as Big of a bag of dicks as he is. There is absolutely not a single soul pushing back on these guys, and no wonder men today feel like they're being torn down. To them, they're just doing what has been historically celebrated behavior. Anyway, this ass clown made the incredible business decision to remove all crops from his holding that weren't coffee plants. Sounds very familiar. This ensured the indigenous workforce couldn't feed themselves off the land and therefore had to rely on the poverty wages from working on the farm to feed their families, and they would have to rely on overpriced food at the store on the plantation. This is wage slavery. It's wage slavery. It is slavery. Once again, slavery slavery. Absolutely none of this, by the way, is mentioned by the J Hill Coffee Company of the namesake coffee company, which still very much operates in El Salvador. Some tasty little bits of hypocrisy I picked up on is that they say Hill was enchanted by the flavor of coffee and had an appreciation for it. He was enchanted by the possibility of making a fortune and he had an appreciation for making money by any means necessary. I also saw on their website that they have a partnership with the World Coffee Research Foundation to study the sustainability of coffee, with the ever-changing climate situation, threatening a majority of the land coffee is grown on worldwide, which is actually a huge issue. Jay Hill Floor Amarilla Farm is now a laboratory to study various aspects of coffee cultivation, which is very rich to me. We started by exploiting the plant for profit and we are gonna have to pry it out of James Hill's cold centuries dead hands. So at least from what I can find, there's not really any advertisement that they're looking to improve the actual conditions and the communities that these farms have affected. If they're doing this to avoid virtue signaling, this is not the time and place to make that call. And with their history, that should be their top priority. Stating this history, acknowledging this history and telling us what they're doing to rectify that. That's nowhere. So this follows the general trend coffee seems to be making through all of its waves. The focus is on the consumer experience, not the grower. And it brings us back to truth and erasure, like we talked about in the beginning. The concern is, will people still be able to access coffee easily? Will the profits fall when the climate changes? Not How does this change affect the workers? This is something that we're going to get into a little more in another upcoming episode, where we talk about the waves of coffee, and you'll get to hear what I'm pretty sure are my unpopular opinions amongst coffee professionals. But for now, by the end of the 19th century, coffee is El Salvador's leading export, known as El Grano de Oro the grain of gold. And the intensive labor needed to grow the coffee plant is supplied by hungry peasants, depended on poverty wages from their oligarchs to feed their families. And as a result, debt peonage was used a lot in export culture. So because their wages are too small, employers would advance payment to the workers. So they would get their money early. And then those workers would have to labor on the plantations to pay off the debt of that money that they had advanced to them. And of course, thanks to manipulation from the elite, the longer they worked, the more the debt grew. And debt peonage became a form of de facto slavery. In the 1920s and 30s, coffee made up 90% of El Salvador's exports. This led to economic disaster when the Great Depression tanked the worldwide economy. The market falls 62% between 1928 and 1932. To make up for the loss, the ruling families take more land and cut workers' wages in half. They're already making poverty wages. They're already starving to death. They cut those wages in half. In response, labor leader Agustín Farabundo Martí led the farm workers in a revolt, demanding better pay and working conditions. And in response, the Salvadorian government executes the rebellion's leaders and massacred an estimated 300,000 peasants in deliberate shootings intended to strike fear into El Salvador's workers and erase the indigenous population. And these events are known as La Matanza, the massacre. In the 1950s and 60s, Latin America was producing four-fifths of the world's coffee, and coffee workers are still being paid poverty wages. So we can't really blame this barbarity on a more brutal time. This was happening in the 1950s and 60s. This is happening today. The resolution of the world wars leads to, well, see, this is so funny because I have this written and I wrote this months ago and now I'm reading it and I'm like, ha. <laughs> The resolution of the world wars leads to a general agreement that imperialism is wrong Um, so that was a fucking lie. I think they just decided that they needed to get a little sneakier. Imperialism is wrong because it's too obvious. So colonial powers withdraw from Latin America, but not without drawing maps and making trade agreements, of course. In 1963, the first international coffee agreement is established, and you might think maybe, oh, this might be a change for the industry, but it really is just this dumbass waste of time system of setting targets, ranges or prices and global export quota fixed to meet the desired price. I don't know. In the end, it essentially benefited buyers at the expense of everyone else. And it was abandoned in 1984. I wish I could say that things were much better today, but coffee still is a huge way to go. Coffee farms typically only earn 7 to 11% of the retail price of coffee. So this means the amount of money a family can make is now tied to a commodity. Child labor is rampant. In Honduras, up to 40% of the workforce is children. And when the price of coffee rises, struggling families are incentivized to pull their children from school to send them to work on the farms. But when the price of coffee drops, poverty increases. And again, families pull their children from school. So as many family members are working on the farm as possible. We know higher levels of education are tied to higher income levels over time. And it's a Essential that children remain in school and that farmers are paid a living wage. Child labor maintains a cycle of poverty over generations. And there are child labor laws in coffee producing, but economic pressures in these regions make authorities reluctant to enforce the law. Debt peonage is very much still a thing. Slavery still exists in the coffee industry. Those large plantations still exist, where the only source for essential goods was the company store. And so they are forced to take advances on their pay because their poverty wages can't buy them food. It's not unusual for families who are part of the permanent workforce to work and live there for generations, pushed into debt by the costs of renting land or interest on loans taken out for medical emergencies. Many workers don't receive overtime or employee benefits, which is mandated by law, and some aren't even paid the minimum wage. There's no access to legally required health and safety initiatives or access to education. In Brazil, hundreds of people are rescued from this modern slavery annually. Nestle admitted that they purchased coffee from two plantations, with known forced labor. And recently, Starbucks also got caught up on it. So you may be asking yourself, okay, well, what now? Where do we go from here? What do we do with this information? There's no denying coffee's history. I mean, its demand fueled the trading of enslaved people, that's just simply fact. And we can't change how ingrained coffee is in our society. I'm a full-time barista, there's cafes all over the place, it's a cultural joke basically how available coffee is to us, and we'll never really know a coffee industry that wasn't shaped by colonial greed, just as we'll never really know what original coffee was like. That's not to say we can't have an impact as baristas. Being actionable that we're talking about, this is where that really comes into play. It isn't just enough to know the things that we've talked about today. Everything that you just learned, it's really great that you know that, but that alone is not enough. As baristas, we're told that we're the final point before the bean reaches the customer, which is entirely true. And so this makes education and skill incredibly important anyone can blindly run coffee grinds through an espresso machine and call that espresso or coffee. But by taking on the position of a barista, you're taking on the responsibility to honor the product. And I don't even mean for whatever company you work for. Quite honestly, I don't give a fuck about the company. You should want to ensure the quality of the product for the sake of the product. You have the ability to return to that intentionality that we, lost with colonialism it starts with you my friend if you are a barista and you are listening when you taste your espresso in the morning while dialing in or throughout the day to ensure the quality and ensure the balance and ensuring while doing that that all of the work that brought that bean to you wasn't for nothing. Growing and harvesting and processing coffee, those are all really physically demanding and time consuming and highly skilled jobs. When we come to our job with apathy because it's just another day job and we cut corners or we let the quality slip because we're just lazy, we're not feeling it, we don't get paid enough, we're doing a disservice and continuing that history of disregard. So I do just wanna back up a little bit and touch on something I just said there. When you're a barista, it can get really easy to get lost in the sauce, you know, and feel like you're not getting paid enough for what we do. And don't get me wrong, we're definitely not being paid enough for what we do. I think it's important to understand that in the supply chain, we're actually pretty well off. And so, that alone is a place of leverage. Do you know what I'm saying? We have the ability to be comfortable enough to educate ourselves and enact change. We're not spending all of our time trying to dig ourselves out of wage slavery. And I think that's just like a really important reality. To keep in mind when you come to your job with apathy because it's just another day job and you cut corners you let quality slip you're doing a disservice and continuing that history of disregard and i think that that is unacceptable you should be striving to produce the best possible version of this product for people to try so that they can understand that coffee is something that is complex and beautiful and something that can bring us together and be intentional. Again, it comes back to we want that intentional headspace, not that colonial headspace of just making money and maximizing profits. This is where accountability goes beyond just educating yourself. You have to apply the knowledge at every opportunity. And then knowing better and still disregarding the product, it's a gross choice. I'm just gonna say it. It's n- with peace and love, fuck off. You can also go ahead and spread the knowledge to your co-workers and the community that you work in, even. If you do want to go ahead and spread the knowledge, the education documents are on Training Grounds podcast com under the education documents tab. You're going to find the education document itself, which is essentially the, you know, facts only outline um, of everything I've just said here. And you're also going to find all of my sources. I didn't directly cite things within that outline, I just went ahead and listed all of the sources on their own. I think that it's important that you dive into those sources yourself. Take a look at what they have to say. And wow, I'm so excited uh, for the next episode. So that is everything for the first episode of Training Grounds podcast. Tune in next time on an undisclosed date for episode number two.